0: Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to the Parkway Church, and happy Groundhog Day. And uh, so raise your hand if you knew that a groundhog and a woodchuck are the same thing. I am 41 years old. I found out this week that that is a true statement, that a groundhog and a woodchuck is the same thing. I think they call it a woodchuck just so they don't have to say how much ground could a groundhog hog, but... Uh, speaking of Groundhog Day, the uh, 1993 uh, movie starring Bill Murray, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it is on my list of one of the movies that uh, anytime it's on, I will watch it. I will watch it over and over again. There are certain movies that I've seen once, and I hope to never see them again. Beaches by uh, starring Bette Midler is on that list. Really anything starring Bette Midler. Uh, But then there are other movies like uh, Tombstone and uh, The Princess Bride and Goonies or Back to the Future or something like that that I love to watch over and over and over again. And Groundhog Day is one of those uh, movies. If you haven't seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you. It's been 27 years, so it's not my fault, it's your fault if you were just waiting to get around to it. But uh, the premise of the movie is Bill Murray plays a uh, a weatherman, and uh, his name is uh, Phil Connors, and he is covering a groundhog slash woodchuck festival in Punxsutawney, PA, Punxsutawney, uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and so he is there, and uh, somehow... Doesn't explain how, somehow he gets trapped in this, uh, this time loop and he has to live the same day over and over and over again. He's actually in this same loop for years and years and years. There's actually entire websites, if you Google search this, that are dedicated to trying to figure out how many years is Phil Connors in this infinite loop. And uh, and, and websites will say anywhere from on the low end like 30 years, on the high end to something like 10,000 years. So that's a long time to do the same things over again, certainly long enough that he learns French poetry and he learns how to play the piano and how to ice sculpt and all of these sorts of things. Every day it's the exact same thing. He wakes up at the exact same time, there's the same Sonny and Cher song on the radio, he gets into the shower and the, sh- the, the water's cold. Uh, there's the same uh, snowstorm, the same guy who greets him, the same uh, puddle that he steps in. And that guy says, watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. The same thing over and over again. No matter what he does, he wakes up in the same place each and every day. He eats whatever he wants. He does whatever he wants. He even dies certain times, and yet he still wakes up and finds himself in this loop. Now, for some of you, it might feel like we have been in the book of 1 John over and over for years and years. We haven't actually been in it for decades. We've just been in it for a few months, but we've seen this same theme over and over and over again. That is the call for us to love one another, for us to love each other. And just like Phil Connors didn't get out of the loop until he actually realized the purpose of his life, so we won't stop talking about this until we actually learn it. And here's the real secret, we won't actually ever learn it. That, uh, that uh, until Christ comes, that there will still be this residue of narcissism, this, this residue of self-love that prevents us from fully accomplishing that. R- raise your hand if you've ever heard the command to love one another. Some of you haven't heard that before. Well, welcome to the Parkway Church, where we will tell you things that people have said always. Love one another. Okay, raise your hand now if you think you have perfectly and completely fulfilled that command. If you think on a regular basis you actually love one another in the way that the Bible would describe. What seems like this is something that is not extraneous, something that is superficial, this is something that we actually need to hear over and over and over again. So let's pray, and then we will uh, dive into our text uh, together. I want to ask that you would begin by praying for yourself. Maybe you are uh, distracted by the Super Bowl or uh, something that happened this weekend or is going to happen this week. Would you pray that the Lord would give you an undivided heart and mind? Would you pray for us corporately as well, that those around you even as a fulfillment of this passage which tells us to love one another that you would pray that the Lord would give us corporately eyes to see and ears to hear and then would you pray for me spiritually for boldness and faithfulness but also physically I've practiced this sermon multiple times and my voice has never held out as I've been kind of fighting some sort of cold or something So Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy. We confess that we can't fulfill any command that you have given us apart from the grace of your spirit. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would actualize this love in our hearts and that you would empower us to actually love one another, that we might have affection and desire and that we might be diligent to actually serve one another because you have served us in your son. And so we pray these things. You're a good father who gives good gifts, and so we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as, uh, as we just read, we will be in 1 John chapter 4, and uh, today we're looking at verses 9 through 12. Look at uh, verse 9 here uh, where John writes, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. On the, uh, on the news the other day, I saw uh, a picture of a cloud and, uh, and the photographer had said that uh, it, this picture to her represented uh, Jesus uh, showing his love and holding out his arms. And so I looked at the picture and what did I see? I see what looked like a big snake squeezing its prey. That's the problem with getting your theology from a cloud. Right? It's not all that objective. It's not all that helpful. We all recognize how silly it is for us to base our certainty, our confidence, our assurance of God's love on uh, the uh, particular shape of a particular cloud. And yet, oftentimes, we do something that's just as silly, just as subjective. We assume that God loves us because we saw a double rainbow, or because we really love snow and it snowed on our particular birthday. Or because we uh, got a promotion at work or because we woke up one day and we just feel really happy. And some days you wake up and you don't feel happy. So on the days that you do feel happy, you, you really think, God must really love me because I feel so good. Or because we did something that we should have done. Or because we didn't do something that we shouldn't have done. And so we feel like, God loves me because I'm being obedient and I'm being morally upstanding or whatever It might be. And there's nothing wrong with rainbows. There's nothing wrong with feeling happy. There's nothing wrong with promotions at work or whatever it might be. But those are about as certain as clouds when it comes to revealing the standard of God's love. A God who, by the way, gives rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. A God who uh, is sovereign over all things but even allows the wicked to prosper. So John is saying, if you want assurance... Of God's love don't look in the skies don't look at your checking account don't look in the mirror instead look at the manger and look at the cross look at Jesus Christ he is the manifestation of the love of God how do you know how do we know that God loves you that God loves us because he sent his only son into the world why did he do that he says, so that we might live through him. In other words, we don't live apart from him. There is no actual life apart from Jesus. There is existence, but unless you actually have Christ, unless you actually love Christ, you don't actually have life. John has already made that clear in, uh, in, <coughs> excuse me, in this epistle. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We're gonna see this same idea developed next chapter in chapter five as well. 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. In other words, what John is writing here is that God the father as an overflow and as an evidence of his love for his people has sent his eternal son, the second person of the Trinity to deliver his people from death both spiritual and physical. Even now, we have a spiritual manifestation of that, but we await for the physical consummation of that in resurrection when uh, Jesus returns. But if this gift of life only flows through Christ, then those who do not have Christ do not have life. We talked about that a little last week. We will continue to talk about that in the book of 1 John because that's one of his main points. Why do Muslims and Mormons And Jehovah's Witnesses and Hindus, why do they not have eternal life? By the way, we're talking about that in theological equipping this semester as we talk about world uh, religions and apologetics. But the short answer, according to this passage, is that they reject the love of God by rejecting the Son of God who is the realization and demonstration of that love. So in order to understand the implications of that, we need to keep reading. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a, uh, there's a comedian, one of my, my favorite uh, comedians, who once told a, uh, a joke that goes something like this. He said, I saw a commercial on late night TV. And in that commercial, they said, forget everything you know about slipcovers. So I did. And it was a load off my mind. And then at the end of the commercial, They tried to sell me a slipcover, but I didn't know what in the world they were talking about. (laughs) I say that because that kind of reminds me of this passage. In a sense, John is saying, forget everything you know about love. Especially in our particular context where that word love is used to describe our relationship to tacos and to dogs and to football and these sorts of things. So forget everything you know about love. I want to start at the end of this verse. And then we're going to uh, make our way backwards, since we were just talking about God sending his son, and you see that same language here uh, in the the back part of this verse. Here is where we see what this sending actually entails, and this uh, fundamentally changes our perspective on God's love. Forget everything you know about love, and now apply what this passage says about love to that. Allow this to actually rebuild your understanding of the uh, context or concept. Here's what I mean. Verse 9 says that God's love is manifest in sending His Son. But you and I, if we're reading this, we need to know what that sending actually implies because sending something is no sure sign of love, right? Amazon sends me packages doesn't mean that Amazon or Jeff Bezos or whatever his name is, doesn't mean that they actually love me. In a couple of months, those of us who are good citizens will send some money to the IRS, thus fulfilling Christ's command that we love our enemies. And yet, that was a joke, and yet that doesn't mean that we actually love the IRS, right? So simply sending something doesn't mean that you actually love them. And yet, God sending His Son is an evidence of His love. So what is it that's so special about God sending His Son? Well, that's that fancy big word that Mike had mentioned, propitiation. Not propitia, which is some hair product, but propitiation, which is a really fancy theological word. It's actually fairly rare in, uh, in the New Testament. It's only used four times. We already encountered it in, uh, in the book of Romans in chapter 3. And uh, we've actually already encountered it in uh, in First John, way back in chapter two. First John two two, says that he that's Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, what is propitiation? Well, there are two related theological terms having to do with what Christ accomplishes uh, on the cross, having to do with what uh, Christ accomplishes in regards to our uh, atonement. The first is the word expiation, Uh, expiation. Expiation has to do with the removal of sin. You and I are sinners, God forgives us, He removes our sin from us. The second word is related. The second word though is propitiation, propitiation. That is not the removal of sin. That's actually the removal of God's wrath, the satisfaction of God's wrath. And those are different concepts. Excuse me, let me cough for a uh, Those are different concepts, but they are related concepts. Like bread and wine are intended to go together in communion. Like faith and repentance are intended to go together in salvation. So expiation and propitiation are intended to be inseparable Truths and inseparable gifts or blessings or 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 accomplishments of Christ, and so both are important. Both are necessary. What do I mean by that? I, I mean that forgiving our sins, which is expiation, is of no help if God's wrath is still directed at us. If you're still under God's wrath, it doesn't matter if your sins are forgiven. And likewise, satisfying God's wrath, which is propitiation, is of no help if we're still accounted as sinners. So both are necessary. They're inseparable. They're indivisible. They are complementary truths. So here we see how God's love is manifest. And we see the relationship between sending and his love, not merely in sending his son, just generically, but the way God's love is manifest is in sending his son as a substitutionary sacrifice, as a propitiatory sacrifice, sending his son to be Slaughtered, sending his son to satisfy his right and just wrath, the right and just wrath of a holy creator directed at unholy creatures such as you and me. As some people like to talk about faith without repentance, some people also like to talk about expiation without propitiation. So also some people like to talk about God's love apart from his wrath. They love to emphasize the love of God, but they neglect the wrath of God. The, uh, the, the, the Packers quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, uh, recently was in the news and he was talking about how he was influenced by a guy named Rob Bell who used to be uh, kind of a Christian pastor, but he's kind of departed from the faith. And, uh, and so Aaron Rodgers was talking about uh, how he couldn't conceive of a God uh, of wrath. He couldn't conceive of God having uh, judgment and condemnation and doctrines like hell and so forth because to him it seemed to contradict the love of God. But notice the irony from this passage. Not only does God sending his son to die for us and to satisfy his wrath uh, not contradict his love, it actually exemplifies his love. It demonstrates his love. God's wrath and the satisfaction of his wrath and propitiation is not something that you and I should be embarrassed by. It's something that we should emphasize. It's something that we should exult in. It's actually the only ground of our hope is that God's wrath is satisfied towards us. So with that in mind, we can now realize what he means in the first part of the verse where he writes, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. Look at that phrase, not that we have loved God. Think about that for a second. Think about what John is saying, that the demonstration, the definition, the description of love is not manifest in the way that you love, whether it's the way that you love your spouse or you love your child or you, uh, uh, whatever it might be, that you can't look to yourself for a demonstration of love. Last week we read that love is from God. In other words, uh, we cannot look to ourselves for a demonstration or a manifestation or defi- uh, definition of love. Your love, my love, our love is but a shadow. It's a faded picture of the real thing. It's a copy of a copy of a copy. All of your worship, all of your good works, all of your expressions of love for God and for others is uh, going to pale in comparison to this demonstration of love that God demonstrates in the cross. The love of uh, God manifest in Christ. Your love, my love, our love is uh, fickle. It's frail. It ebbs and flows. It it dissipates like a mist or like clouds in the sky. His love is unchanging. His love is fixed. So I want you to notice a few implications of this. First, notice how, uh, in a sense, we are continuing to build out uh, the outworking of the definition or the description of love that we've mentioned uh, before. A few weeks ago, Zach talked about love and, uh, and said that love involves doing what is best for someone. So how does God love you? By doing what is best for you. By removing sin, by removing guilt, by satisfying His wrath that we might be delivered from death and judgment and have, might, might have life and joy. God does what is best by giving what is best, namely himself. So that was a couple of weeks ago. We said, what is love? Love involves doing what is best for others. And then last week, Jared kind of uh, added an addendum onto that uh, description or definition of love. And he says it's not merely doing what is best, but it also involves uh, uh, some, some degree of feeling Uh, And so that love entails a warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them. And so we saw that there is action, but there is also affection. God is not apathetic or indifferent to His children. And so then we come to this text, and we actually see we can add another addendum onto that. So I want to do that, add one more qualifier So what we've already said, love entails a warm regard or concern for others as you do what is best for them. But I want to add this little uh, phrase there, by sacrificing or giving of yourself for them. That's what we see here, that love is costly. Love involves sacrifice. It involves selflessness. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient by its very definition. We'll talk more about that in a little bit, but that's the first thing that I want you Uh, to notice this outworking, this expansion of this definition or description of love. But the second thing I want you to notice is notice what that implies about us and notice what it implies about God. If the only thing that can actually make you right is propitiation, then what does that imply about you? That implies that you are not good. You are not worthy. You are not meritorious. You are bad, you are wicked, you are evil. We are by nature, according to the Bible, children of wrath. So what does that actually imply about God's love? That's not something for us to run from. That's something for us to run into because it helps us see more clearly the nature of God's love. It means that God doesn't love the unlovely. Uh, I'm sorry, God doesn't love the lovely because no one is lovely apart from Christ. It means that God loves the unlovely, which is good news for you and me because we are not lovely. It's relatively easy to love those who love us, to love those who are worthy of our love. It's easy to love your kids or your spouse or your parents or whatever it is. It's hard to love those who are unlovely. And yet God says, the Bible says that God loves even his Enemies, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it's altogether different for us to love those who are unlovely, and yet that is exactly what God has done, and that is what this passage is telling us to emulate. We're halfway finished, let's keep going. Verse 11 Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I was at a, a church conference about 15 years ago at a previous church. And uh, and a leading evangelical scholar made the uh, not-so-shocking statement that Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Jesus tells us to love our enemies, right? Great. Simple Christianity 101, but uh, that's not the end of the story. If that was the end of the story, it'd be like this worst sermon anecdote ever, right? Some guy told us to love our enemies. Great story, Jeff. That's not the end of the story because uh, after this guy had said that, uh, he opened it up to Q&A. And, uh, and this guy, this other guy stood up and he grabbed the mic and, uh, and he said, so you're saying that I have to love my enemies? I don't know why I went into that voice, but that's kind of the voice that he had. Well, I'll tell you what, that's kind of what he sounded like. If some terrorist came in here with an AK-47 trying to shoot up the place, I'm not thinking twice about taking him down. And then, I kid you not, he actually did this. He looked around the room in a real Leroy Jenkins sort of moment. He yelled, who's with me? And I thought, he thought this place was going to erupt, but instead it was like crickets, right? Here's the problem that we had, is that we didn't know who this guy was. There were no terrorists in here. There were no AK-47s, and this guy hadn't said, hey, if a terrorist comes in here, you just have to let him. It, nothing was actually relevant to what he had said. It was all really, really confusing. Well, that's the thing about telling us to love our enemies, or even for us to love one another, the human heart is really good at coming up with exceptions. You don't have to mention all of the exceptions. You just naturally think of all of these exceptions that come up, which is why this command coming where it does in the actual flow of this particular text and with the motivation that it has is so brilliant. Think of all the potential exceptions. Maybe even now you're thinking of some. Jeff, you say that we should love one another, but, and something fills in that blank for you. I'll love those, but I'll only uh, love those who love me. But let me ask you a question. Is that how God loves? No, he loves those who hate him, The Bible says that before you are born again, your disposition toward God is not love. It's not even neutrality. It's actual antagonism. It's enmity. It is hate. You in your flesh hate God. God doesn't love those who love him. He loves those who don't. I'll love those who are lovable. We already talked about that. Is that how God loves? No, God doesn't love those who are lovely. God loves the wicked and the evil and the uh, depraved. I'll love those who make it really easy on me. Is that how we see God do it? No, God gives His own Son. It's costly, it's sacrificial, it's selfless. So John has already, when we get to this command, John has already exposed the excuses of the human heart by showing us what love actually entails so that by the time he actually gives us the command, we have no apologies, we have no exceptions, we have no excuses to actually hide behind. In a sense, this should be really freeing for us. This should be really freeing for us because it means that we don't have to wait on another in order to love them. You don't have to wait on someone else to see if they merit your love because merit has nothing to do with it. You don't have to see how they're gonna respond to your love because their response is not the point. Your love is the point. You're free to just love Regardless of how someone responds, 99 times out of 100, when we are counseling couples going through marital difficulties, one of them will say something to the effect of, uh, I can't love this person because they don't do this. Or I can't love this person because they do this. What's happening in that moment? All of a sudden, their love is contingent on the response of their spouse. But John has already showed us that that isn't the type of love that he's calling for. He's not commanding this contingent, conditional sort of love. In fact, the very nature of the love that he is promoting implies sacrifice. Doing not just what is convenient, not just what is comfortable or easy, but rather what is in the best interest of the other. This verse is uh, somewhat similar to the way that Christ argues in the Gospels. Most of you are are probably familiar with what is sometimes called the parable of the unforgiving servant. I'll summarize it for those who might not immediately recall it. Uh, It takes place in Matthew 18 and Jesus tells this story, he tells this parable about a man who owed this outrageous sum of money to another man. Ten thousand talents, we don't know what a talent is today, but uh, to put it into today's terms, uh, that would be equivalent to about $15 billion, billion dollars—billion with a B, which might not seem like a lot of money if you live in Prosper or Frisco, but to us McKinians, that's a whole lot of money. And so he owes this, this, this almost infinite sort of debt, and, uh, and so he goes and he pleads with the man that he owes it to, and he, and he begs him, and he receives mercy, and the guy cancels his entire debt. All $15 billion, all 10,000 talents are canceled out. But then what does that guy go and do? He goes out from there, he finds this guy who owes him a couple of measly dollars and he puts him in a chokehold. What's the point of that parable? Well, the point of the parable should be fairly easy uh, to recall, it's that uh, if you've been forgiven, then you will also forgive. If you've received mercy, you should extend mercy. That's similar to what John is saying here. If you have been loved and you've been loved in this incredibly rich and complex and expansive way, then you should be free to love in the same way, richly and generously and sacrificially and selflessly and humbly and so forth. If you've been loved, you should be loved. And similar to the parable, the discrepancy between what you have received and what you have been given is actually embarrassing. Here's what I mean. You have sinned far more against God than anyone has ever sinned against you. I say that knowing that some of you in this room have been so egregiously sinned against by somebody, and yet I can say with absolute confidence that that person has not sinned against you as greatly or as gravely as you have sinned against a perfectly holy God. And that is actually really freeing for you, there is nothing that will actually free you to love and to serve and to otherwise care for others like realizing how vile and dirty and depraved and wicked and evil you are. And yet, at the same time, how loved and accepted and forgiven you are. As the pastor Tim Keller uh, has said, we are far more wicked and depraved than we ever dared believe, but at the same time, far more deeply loved than we would even dare. Hope. That's the irony of those who would call themselves preachers who say we don't ever want to talk about sin. We don't ever want to talk about how you're wicked. We don't ever want to talk about uh, how you're evil or depraved or any of these sorts of things. We just want to talk about love. Ironically, then you don't actually see the full manifestation of love. You actually see a a little distorted, deluded picture of love. Because instead of being this this, uh, bridge between this infinite chasm that exists between you and God, it seems to be much smaller if you don't start from the presupposition that you are evil. And yet, you're loved. As John Calvin wrote, all true knowledge begins with a knowledge of yourself and a knowledge of God, which means that if you want to truly love others, you begin by recognizing how unlovely you are. And yet, at the same time, how loving and lovely God is. As long as you believe that you are even the slightest bit worthy of God's love, then you will only look to love in that same way. You'll look for others who merit your love. You'll look for others who are worthy of your love. You'll look for others who earn your love. And you won't actually be free to love in the way that Christ has loved you. And it'll be really easy for you to justify never actually loving anybody because you won't find others who actually meet that arbitrary subjective standard. Let's keep going. Final verse. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. No one has ever seen God is, is a phrase that readers uh, of John's gospel would have been familiar with. In John 1.18, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made uh, him Known. And in the context of John's gospel in the first chapter, it makes sense uh, to to use this phrase, no one has ever seen God, in order to show the the uniqueness of God's revelatory act in Christ. That's the point uh, of John John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He's showing how unique this revelatory act of, uh, of the appearance of the sending of Christ is in John chapter 1. But here in 1 John, it seems to kind of come out of nowhere. It, it, uh, it seems to, uh, uh, why is it that all of a sudden he mentions that no one has ever seen God? Well, first, let's talk about what it means, and then we'll talk about why I think that John has, uh, has put it here. First, what does it mean whenever John writes, no one has ever seen God? Well, it doesn't mean that God has, doesn't exist. All right, we talked about that a little bit in Theological equipping this morning, that God's existence is actually a necessary attribute. No one has ever seen a leprechaun. No one has ever seen a unicorn. No one has ever seen Baylor win a national championship in football because those things don't actually exist, and they never will exist. (laughs) Sorry if you're a a bear. I'm an Aggie, so I have to do that. Um, It also doesn't mean, whenever it says that no one has ever seen God, it doesn't mean that God is just really, really good at hide-and-go-seek. He exists, and you could see Him, but you just don't see Him because He's so good at hiding himself. That's not John's point at all. John's point isn't just that no one has seen God, but that no one can see God. Why not? Because he's not spatial. He's not physical. He doesn't have a body. As John 4 says, uh, God is spirit. He cannot be seen because he has no uh, material. He has no body. He has no substance to be seen. He is creator and not created. He is real he is relational, he is personal, but he is not created. He is the maker, he is not made. But doesn't the Bible say, especially in the Old Testament, that so and so saw God? Well, yes, those are called theophanies. You can look up uh, that term, theophanies. But what is happening in those cases isn't that someone is physically actually seeing God because God isn't physical, but instead they're seeing things that represent God, like smoke or fire or whatever uh, it might be. If you have questions about that, you can email me at zach at com. So that's what he means by no one has seen God. He means no one can see God because God himself is not uh, physical, but why does he bring it up? And I think that's where the context is going to help us uh, to understand that. If you've been with us for a little bit in First John, you remember the context is that there are these false teachers, and these false teachers are promoting a heresy, and that uh, that heresy has split the church. That many people have gone out from uh, the church. So it'd be, it would be really nice if there was a, a way to distinguish false teachers from true teachers, false Christians from true Christians. And so John gives us actually three litmus tests throughout the book of first John. He gives a theological test that those who know and love and trust Jesus believe certain foundational truths. He also gives us a moral test that those who love and trust Jesus have a certain disposition towards sin. They have a growing hatred for sin and a growing love for sanctification. And then there's also a relational test that uh, those who love and trust Jesus also love and trust the body and bride of Jesus. They love the church. They love one another. So he gives us these three tests, and these uh, three tests are cyclical. They're woven throughout the book. He doesn't just give each one one time. He actually gives them in a, uh, a series. Uh, and so in other words, even though these false teachers don't wear jerseys like you'll see in the Super Bowl with your last name on it, it says heretic on the back or false teacher on the back they're, they're easy enough to spot if you know the clues if you know the tests well likewise even though God himself can't be seen we can see evidences of his presence in our love for each other I think that's John's point here that no one has ever seen God but we see his love manifest because I haven't seen Christ sent I've never personally physically seen Jesus Christ and yet I see expressions of His love in the love that we have for one another. Now let's look at the, uh, the last part of the verse. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Well, what does that mean? Well, that is a conditional statement. We've talked about conditional statements before. John uses them quite a bit in this epistle. A conditional statement is a statement that uh, has some sort of condition. If this then that is a conditional statement. The if is the condition, the then is the, uh, the outcome of that condition. If we love one another, God abides in us. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that God's love uh, for us or that God's abiding in us is somehow conditioned, uh, conditioned by or contingent upon our love for one another? That's how we often use if-then statements in everyday sort of, uh, of life when I tell you If we keep growing as a church, then we need to buy new chairs, then I'm using that if-then sort of statement in that way. Our growing is the cause of us buying more chairs. This isn't field of dreams. If you build it, they will come sort of idea. Our growing is the cause, and buying new chairs is the effect. But that isn't the way that John is using the condition here. Think of the sentence, if I have a cough, then I am sick, right? In that sentence, my cough It's not the cause of my sickness, it's an evidence of my sickness. And that's the way that John is using uh, this conditional statement here. Why is that important? Why is it important for you to recognize the way that this conditional statement is used? Because otherwise it makes God's love for you dependent on you. And that is a huge distortion of the gospel that will plague you for the rest of your life. It will shackle you to an impossible standard. All right, it would imply that God's love for us ebbs and flows as our love ebbs and flows. Second, what does it mean that God's love is perfected in us? Well, the word perfected could also be uh, translated as uh, completed or fulfilled. Even God's love is fulfilled in us might also be a translation. It's as if God's uh, people are instruments or God's people are vessels through which his love flows to his people. That it flows through me to you, through you to me, and, uh, and so forth. As we love one another, God's love is manifest among us. Let me give you an illustration that might help. The other day, my daughter had completely trashed her room. There were books, there were dolls, there were toys that were completely strewn about. You know those pictures of an area where the floodwaters have dissipated? That was my daughter's room, Right? And so I come in from work. My, my wife is in the kitchen and she is cooking and she's watching my uh, seven-month-old son. And, uh, and meanwhile, my daughter has just had free reign in her room and uh, it's just complete uh, rubble. And so I see that and I know that's not gonna be good for Casey to see. She's not gonna be happy about that. And so I, uh, I take Larkin and I sit her down and I say, hey baby, because we love mommy, let's clean our room. She said, okay, daddy. And so she goes, she's three and a half, She's not like, uh, you know, 18 or something. And, uh, and so she's three and a half, which means that it wasn't a great job cleaning the room. Books were out of order. Things were stuffed in the wrong drawer. Things were thrown in the closet. But just in general, it no longer looked like, uh, you know, floodwaters had dissipated. It, it looked relatively clean. It looked relatively uh, orderly. And so a, a little bit later, Casey actually walks back there and she sees it. And she feels loved. Yeah, on, on one hand, she feels loved by Larkin because Larkin would go through all of this. But on the other hand, she also recognizes in three and a half years, Larkin has never cleaned her room, just on her own. So what does Casey know? Casey knows that I sat Larkin down and asked her to clean the room so that she doesn't just feel loved by Larkin, she feels loved by me. I think that's part of the point that John is making here. That as we love one another, it's not merely a demonstration of our love for one another. It's actually a demonstration of God's love for us. That God's love for us is flowing through us to each other. I think that's what John is getting at here. By loving each other, we manifest the love of God to each other. And thus get a small little slight glimpse of the glory of an unseen God. That's the basic overview. overview. That's the thrust of 1 John 4, 9 through 12. And to to begin to kind of wrap up, I want to talk, what what do we do uh, about this? What are the implications, what are the applications of this text? And so I want to talk about two, just two implications or two applications of the text. The first should be somewhat obvious. That is that we are to love one another. It sounds simple enough. It's a, a really simple statement. And yet it's not. After all, we've said it dozens and dozens of times. If you've been in church for any period of your life, you've heard this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. If you've read the Bible, you've read this dozens and dozens of times. And yet all of us at the beginning said, I haven't accomplished it. I haven't fulfilled this. I haven't completed this. And you won't until Christ returns and removes that residue of sin. This text is really difficult to preach because it can't be summed up in one particular sort of command. That's what we all want. We all want a a rule. Rules are easy, right? Give 10%. Come this many weeks a year. Don't punch someone in the face, right? We like rules because they're really easy. I did or didn't punch someone in the face. So I know whether or not I was actually obedient to it. But how do you actually apply a text like this, which is so all-encompassing? Every single minute of every single day is under this banner of loving one another. It is holistic. So in a sense, it's really difficult to preach because there's not just one application I can give you. There are, If there are 400 people in this room, there are 400 different applications of this text that are necessary. So the frustrating thing about this text and indeed this command It's how utterly holistic it is. The flow of the text is basically saying that God has loved you by giving his son in order to give you life so that you would love others by laying down your life in humble service. And there are infinite applications of that. So think about the ongoing description of love that we've considered over the past few weeks. Think of all of the little practical nooks and crannies within that. First, the phrase love entails a warm regard or concern for others. So ask yourself this question, are you cultivating that? Are you cultivating a love for others, a a genuine affection, sympathy, compassion, pity, desire, these feelings, are you actually cultivating them for others or are you relatively apathetic to the needs of those around you? I have no, uh, no doubt whatsoever that you have a warm regard or concern for someone, your child, your spouse, your parent, whatever it might be, but look around the room. Actually, look around the room. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. This is the one another that this text is telling us to love one another. It's not just about your biological family. It's about your spiritual family the people that God has given to you for the uh, mortification of your flesh, that you might die to yourself. We, the church, are the one another that's mentioned here. Next, that phrase, as you do what is best for them. So even if you don't have the feeling, are you doing the action? Do you do the action even if you don't have the affection? Maybe you're not in a place where you feel those feelings for others. The Bible would say, don't compound the sin of apathy with the sin of disobedience to the command to help and serve and encourage and so forth. There is never a time where I actually feel like changing my son's diaper. There's never a time where I think, you know what I want to do right now? I want to handle feces. That's never come up in my entire life. There will never be a time where I will want to do that. Does that mean that I just don't do it? Of course not, that's absurd. That's absurd. So simply not having the feeling doesn't mean that you don't do the action. No, I do the action even as I wait for my feelings to one day catch up. But this phrase, do what is best for them, also implies that you know what is best for others. Love assumes that you can discern such things. It it assumes that you actually know others, that you know the people in this room. Not just know their names, but actually know their lives, know their struggles, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, know their gifts, uh, know all of those sorts of, uh, of things. It, it assumes that you know others and, and their needs and that you uh, can uh, discern needs from wants and that you can discern good from bad and you can discern theological truth from theological error. And in your desire to feed them with the good word that you don't actually feed them some poisoned apple of pragmatism or legalism or existentialism or whatever other ism it might be. And finally, that phrase concludes by saying that uh, love involves sacrificing or giving of yourself for others. This is where this command, again, is holistically going to infringe on your life. All of your conveniences, all of your comforts. Love is decidedly uncomfortable. It's decidedly, it's definitionally inconvenient. It involves sacrificing your wants and your desires to meet the needs of others. It involves you laying down your preferences for the sake of others. So again, there are infinite applications, infinite expressions of this type of love. If you can't find an application of this text, it's because you don't care enough to actually look for it. Which means, again, I can't give just one solitary rule. Go forth from here and do this, or don't do this. We all need to apply this text, but the applications look different for different people. For some of you, this might mean, you know what? I've been thinking about it, I finally need to do it. I need to contact Zach about getting in the community group because I've been on the fringes. I've been in the shadows. I've not actually had any sort of community for however long that's been. For some of you, it might mean that you need, immediately after service is out, that you need to make a beeline to someone and you need to to reconcile. You need to ask for forgiveness for some bitterness or some resentment or some sort of uh, slight or wound or whatever it might be. For some, it means you might need to contact Carl and think, one of the ways that I can love this body is by serving in preschool. Some of you need to ask the stranger that's sitting next to you or sitting in front of you or behind you to go to lunch, to just get to know them. Some of you need to more regularly pray for the church. Some of you need to more regularly give to the church. Some of you need to more regularly come to church. There are infinite, again, applications of this particular text. So I don't want to give you just one. I want to allow the Spirit just to press upon your heart as you need to hear. So are you actually, truly, generously, sacrificially, humbly loving one another? That's the first application. But the reality is that you will most likely fail in applying that first application by the time you get to your car. That's the reality. Sin is so pervasive in our lives. Even if we have been transformed and been sanctified and love and trust Jesus and love and trust others, that sin is so pervasive still that we'll fail in this command hundreds of times in the next week. That's why we need this second application and that is that we might rest in the love of God. That's where I want you to end this, uh, the, the thinking about this text this morning Why, why should we rest in the love of God? Because it doesn't change. His love for you is not dependent on you. It's dependent on his son and he doesn't change. Even when you don't love, he loves you. Even before his wrath was satisfied, even before he was propitiated, he sent his son. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he loved you and elected you to life and to joy. If he loved you before his wrath was satisfied, before atonement was made, Why would you doubt it now after those things have already been accomplished? Unless you can go back in time and keep Christ from dying, unless you can go back even further and keep God the Father from sending his son, unless you can go back even further before time itself and keep God the Father from electing you, then you can't change his love. No matter how much you doubt or struggle or sin or whatever it might be, you can't change God's love for you. Which means that many of us Maybe the application for us is that we need to repent. We need to repent of our efforts, to think of God's love through the lens of our own, making God's love for us dependent on us or dependent on our works or anything else that we might truly do so that we might ultimately rest in his love. So yes, this passage does tell us to love others, but even more than that, it tells us that we are loved. Even though we are unlovely, God has loved us and given his son for us that we might rest. And that actually empowers us to love others. Let's pray as the men come forward to serve communion. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I just confess it's hard, it's easy to, uh, to figure out what John means here. and It's easy to understand that we should love one another and yet in our own strength, it is utterly impossible for us to fulfill this command. And so I pray that you would empower us to do that but at the same time, I pray, Lord, that our hope would not be in our fulfillment of this command but in the fact that you have fulfilled all of the commands for us in your son. Help us now as we focus on Christ In communion, we pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we pray in Christ's name, amen.